Section 3 of G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine by G. K. Chesterton. Section 3 Public Laws and Private Liquors. The most startling and rending revolution in our politics would be the introduction of self-government. We are perhaps further from it than any human beings in history. We may have parliamentary government or republican government. We may even, with far less truth, call it democratic government. If we mean that the mob of the city is occasionally consulted, preferably about something it cannot possibly understand. We may help to decide the destiny of Yugoslavs or Czechoslovaks. It is our own destiny we cannot decide. Governing ourselves would mean governing our own furniture, architecture and landscape, and what we eat and drink and wear. Whatever else we have got, we have not got this. I will take a familiar, if fanciful, case, like the case of games, of how our novelty never begins at home. Our fathers, or rather our mothers, made drinks from all kinds of plants and fruits, as monasteries made their own liquors. If life had developed along that line more luxuriantly, we should go to dine with Brown or Robinson, not to drink the same champagne or cognac but a curious liquor called brownie, or a special vintage of Chateau Robinson. It might be something extracted from hollyhocks, or a trifle distilled from sunflowers. It might be an acquired taste, but it would be a true novelty, and not as the advertisements. But the important point here is simply this, that any such invention would be instantly crushed by all our modern laws about licensing, distilling, alcohol, and all the rest of it. That is how freedom and self-government can be crushed today. Brown can never discover brownie. Seasons return, but not to us returns the sacred day in religious history when the Benedictines discovered Benedictine. It may certainly be maintained as reformers do maintain, that drinking is a public matter, but only on the theory that there is no such thing as a private matter. If a man does not own his own body, he cannot possibly own anything, least of all his own soul. He cannot claim to clothe his body unless he can claim to feed it for the outer world cannot have more rights over his inside than his outside. Or again, if he cannot open his mouth to drink, he cannot open it to talk. A reformer, rather wiser perhaps than most of our social reformers said, it may be remembered by the learned, nearly two thousand years ago, that what cometh out of the mouth and not what goeth in defileth a man. A great deal of harm is done through drinking. 
but a mathematician might well go mad in trying to calculate the amount of harm that is done by talking as many homes have been wrecked by nagging as by drinking and the drinking has very often been the result of the nagging the most irresistible and the most irrevocable part of education has been done before the beginning of instruction it is not in what is said to a child but in what is said before a child more than half of our psychology is probably an accumulation of accidents our brains were built up of idle words and we found our first principles in things we were not meant to hear in short if the reformer rests his case on the largeness of the problem we know that there is nothing so large as small talk we all know that as a saint said the tongue is little and terrible that a snub may make men hopeless but a compliment may make them vain that we all walk the world dealing this destruction out of our mouths we have all had the feeling that parents bring up their children in the white way by systematically saying the wrong thing or at least if parents will not admit this about themselves they will admit it about each other but picture the horrible pantomime that life would be if we made a public rule for this private matter as we are now making it for the other private matter suppose the state interfered with speech as it now interferes with drink with diet and details of hygiene suppose there were a conversation ministry as there is a health ministry in england today suppose the state sent out armies of eavesdroppers to hide behind doors and under tables as it now sends out armies of inspectors to measure windows or analyze water suppose doctors were allowed to cut off the tongues of poor children whom they chose to call vicious as they are allowed to cut off the hair of poor children whom they choose to call verminous suppose talk were treated as drink is treated in england suppose a man was not allowed to tell a funny story except between one and two or between six and nine or suppose he had to get a doctor's prescription to allow him to laugh a little scientific essay saying that the exercise was not beyond his muscular powers and was necessary to his nervous system suppose talk was treated as drink is treated in america suppose there was as the romances say an utter universal silence broken only by those who could manage to break it suppose a man who wanted to laugh was allowed to go to somebody who sold snuff on the pretense that he wanted to sneeze suppose he had to go into a sort of loft full of luggage and put his head in a bag or suppose a trickle of talk were permitted so long as it had passed like the water through the filter of the scientific state a man might take out a license allowing him so many words a week with a fine for slang words and a bonus for scientific words or we might have our conversation for the day planned out for us by intelligent officials on sitting down to dinner we might find a little card like a menu 
providing us with fourteen platitudes and two epigrams. All the world would be a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Word perfect in their respective parts in one pre-arranged social comedy, written for his own entertainment by some salaried gentleman at Washington or Whitehall. Now the purpose of the comparison is entirely concrete and conclusive. Though there may seem at first a faint tinge of the fanciful or the improbable about these examples of it, the point is that if we found ourselves murmuring gently against such a state stricture on talk, our complaint would not consist of denying either its public importance or its possible utility. If there were no talk, there would be far fewer tragedies, and Metterlinkt might argue that, in a universal silence, all souls would begin to understand each other. It is certain that many souls would be less likely to misunderstand each other to the extent of murder and suicide. Our objection could not be stated in the form that the restriction did us no good of any kind. It could be rather stated in the form that it left us no good of our own. It would serve to cut down to almost nothing the effect of our own personalities on our own lives. And that is precisely the tendency of the whole political machinery of our time. It means our being linked up with a thousand things that are not our own, and thereby losing everything that is our own. We are to receive good things, but we are not to choose good things, far less to create good things. A man is to be a market that is all imports and no exports. The city is trying to build citizens, forgetting that only the citizens can build the city. The sort of citizen it is trying to build is what one might expect it to be if brainless bricks and mortar tried to imagine a man. But the citizen is not only practically prevented from building a city, but even from building a house. The shape even of the shell that he should make for himself is beaten shapeless by all sorts of heavy hygienic and bureaucratic limitations. Now I suggest, as a convenient parable, that a city would be much more interesting if every house in it were made by a man and not by a machine. To give the parable more local color, I will fit it to a concrete case in the countryside where I live. The poor for miles round my house have long been needlessly impoverished by being forbidden to keep pigs. The form of the veto is that the pig's die must be at a certain distance from the house, and its aim is supposed to be hygienic. The fact of it is that the pig owner must be rich enough to own a fair amount of land, and its aim is the prevention of small property, otherwise the oppression of the poor. Now compared with this state of things, I would unhesitatingly prefer that a pig were curled up on the drawing-room hearthrug like a cat, or taken out for a drive in a motor-car like a lap-dog. I would prefer that my next-door neighbor should keep 
not merely a pet pig but a pet kangaroo or even a pet rhinoceros i would rather he planned his whole house to suit the rhinoceros a regal rhinoceros style eclipsing the glories of a pigsty i would rather that a wild rhinocerine style of architecture ran through every pillar and pinnacle of that habitation its walls heavy with pachyderotometous plates its spires rising into horrible horns for if this be a nightmare even to the fastidious nonsense at least it would mean that a man was alive somewhere and doing what he liked with something and that would be better than this modern centralization in which a city is a cemetery it is a cemetery of whited sepulchres in which one funeral official goes his round with a pail of whitewash and we sit silent in our houses because we are dead end of section three public laws and private liquors read by michael shane craig lambert l c